can be seated. Go ahead and switch this onto the lapel and uh, turn the pulpit microphone off. Yeah, perfect. Alrighty, is that too loud? It's a little loud, isn't it? Turn that down just a little bit. Perfect. Good. Thank you. Alrighty, take your Bibles this morning and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Does that sound about right or is that loud? Oh, yeah, the, the music is on. Mute the music. Just, just mute it. Perfect. Man, it sounds like a thunderstorm going in the background, doesn't it? We'll try to get used to that. All right, Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to continue with the, uh, the, the, uh, the lesson that we started last week about the fact that it looked different in the picture. Did, did everybody get a uh, sheet that didn't have a book? Good. All right. And um, I'll go through quickly uh, last week in, in case you missed it or in case you have a new sheet that you, weren't, that you don't have the, the things filled in. And just for our, uh, just for our uh, review, but we're talking about expectations, and we said that expectations ruin relationships. Um, and, and that's, honestly, that's what we, we, we spent a, a good bit of time talking about that last week because we... Uh, a lot of people have unrealistic expectations when they go into a marriage, and even once they're in marriage, um, and especially when uh, marriage hits a rocky time, a lot of times it's because of the the expectations, things that we're expecting out of our spouse that may have just gone unmet, and when those expectations go unmet, then that's when that's when things usually go south, and so uh, a lot of the common unrealistic expectations. Number one is that marriage will make me happy. Uh, marriage can help make us happy, but if our happiness is only based in marriage, then it's not going to last. Our happiness needs to be based and founded in Jesus Christ. The second thing that we said is that my spouse should meet all my needs. Um, when you focus on only your needs, that can ruin a marriage. We talked about that. The third thing we said is that my spouse will change after marriage. Um, marrying someone with the expectation that they become a different person is, is unreasonable and it's unfair. Uh, the fourth thing that is a common um, unrealistic expectation is that marriage is easy if you're married to the right one. And the point that I made last week is once you get married, it is the right one. Uh, you make it work, <laughs> right? It's why it's so important to find the right one before marriage. But once you get married, you found the right one. Because God wants us to stay married. Uh, the fifth thing is that good marriages never struggle. And of course, that's not founded in reality either. So, we get to number two today. And we said that happiness is found in humility. Happiness is found in humility. Now, our flesh tells us that the only way that our unfulfilled expectations can be overcome is if our spouse will change, turn those expectations into fulfilled desires. But Scripture, the, the scripture tells us that there's another way. And in Philippians chapter 2, of course, this is a very um, well-known passage when it comes to talking about Jesus Christ, but the journey to happiness in marriage is not found in insisting that your spouse change. Um, it's in learning to change your thoughts by letting the mind of Christ take over your mind. And that's what the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." 
Now, those words are convicting. And uh, interestingly enough, they come directly after verses about uh, having unity in a relationship. Look back just a couple verses in verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That's not giving us permission to cheat off of somebody else's test. That's saying that we ought to be concerned about everybody else's needs, and especially when it comes to our spouses. And so I think if, if we were to take this passage at face value, how do you think it would transform your marriage? You know, uh, Jesus came to earth with only the expectation to serve. That was it. He didn't come because he was trying to get anything else. He came to serve, and he was here to sacrifice for others. Mark chapter 10 and verse 45 makes that pretty clear as well. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Uh, a minister is a servant, and that's exactly what Jesus Christ came for. He had no hidden agenda. Uh, no, if I serve them, then they'll do blank for me. He didn't have any of that mentality. And so Jesus' humility... Uh, and we see that very plainly in Philippians chapter 2, but Jesus' humility is, is, um, uh, is a rebuke to our self-centered thought patterns. A lot of times it's that way, you know? And so if you want to transform your thinking towards your spouse, then you have to transform your thinking to, be, to, to have the mind of Jesus Christ. Uh, think about it. Read it daily when it comes to these passages. Write it out. Reprogram our minds to, to, to have the, expe uh, the expectancy of being Christ-like. Uh, if, if our minds are Christ-like and in the way that we want to serve, then we'll never feel like we're getting cheated. We'll never feel like we're missing out, if that's what our mindset is. Um, our shift in expectations initially takes place in our minds, but at some point, we have to take actions toward our spouse if we're to shift from expecting to serving. So what does Philippians chapter 2, living, look like in everyday terms? That's three points that we have there underneath number two. And the first one is die to self. When we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, he gives us a brand new nature. We talked a lot about that last week in the message. We, we had the idea that um, when, when we become a new creature, that flesh is our constant enemy. The old man is our constant enemy. But we are still a new creature says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are com become new. And, and I pointed this last week out in the, in the message uh, the, on Sunday morning that the habits of our hearts and the temptations of life just don't vanish overnight because we're a new person. We still fight those temptations. We still fight the flesh. We still fight against the old man. Uh, but the flesh is, is my tendency to satisfy my needs or my desires outside of the obedience of God. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Even as a Christian with the Holy Spirit indwelling our lives, we have a tendency to, to build expectancy of what my spouse should be doing for me. We all do that. Um, when I say, I just thought he would, or I just thought she would understand my need for blank, that's usually an indication of selfishness and discontent. And in short, it's fleshliness. That's what it is. That's what it comes down to. Here's the thing about the flesh. 
you can't reform it. You can't just try harder to, to have less expectations or, or to be less selfish. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 31, I die daily. Now, obviously, he wasn't saying that he dies physically and miraculously rises every morning or something like that. He was teaching us that the only way to overcome the flesh is not to reform it. It's not to try harder to, to suppress it. It's to kill it. It's to kill it. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul kind of expounds a little bit more on that idea. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. He's saying I'm not, I'm not dead physically, but I am crucifying myself. I, 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 I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That, that verse echoes the entire truth of the New Testament that, that we as believers are in Christ. And the Christian life was, was never designed to be just a, you know, get out of hell free card. You know, and I say that often, but if, if the only reason we were saved is so that we could go to heaven, then God would take us to heaven the moment we're saved. He's got a lot more for us in this life. He wants us to be Christ-like. Our spiritual relationship to God is that we have the relationship, the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the ability to allow Jesus to live through us. That's what it means to be Christ-like. That's what it means to be in Christ. But that requires that we choose to die daily. That, mean, that, cho that, that requires that we die to self, die to our fleshly tendencies, die to our fleshly desires. Romans chapter 6 and verse 11 tells us very plainly that we can have the power as Christians to do this. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ. See, if you're dying to something, you have to be living to something else. And many times people die to, to their spiritual lives and they live to the flesh. Even as Christians, what Christ says that we should be doing is dying to the flesh and living to Christ. So this daily dying to self decision can be as simple as praying when you wake up in the morning, Lord, I want to be holy. I want to be right with you. Please help me to have victory over my flesh. Please help me to, uh, to allow you to live through me and in me. Please help me to live my life in Christ. I'm not suggesting that you have to recite some certain prayer every single day or that you, you, know, you have something that you have memorized that you quote every morning. It's not something that, you know, doing the rosary or something like that, but it's, it's a decision. And if we are waking up in the morning and asking Christ to live through me and in me in that day, then I'm making a conscious decision in that morning to be dead to self. And a, and a prayer like that cannot, does not, you know, just obliterate the temptations. We're still going to face those temptations, but it can set your heart in the right direction and it can prepare your heart to yield yourself to the Holy Spirit. And if we're dead to self, it's going to help us to be alive to Jesus Christ and um, obviously aware of the needs of our spouse. Here's the second thing that we can do in, in being humble, and that is to yield to the Holy Spirit. So die to self, yield to the Holy Spirit. What does dying to self look like in real life, especially as it relates to expectations in marriage? Well, you know, for instance, it's, it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon and, and um, you know, your wife asks you again if you've heard back from the, uh, the companies that you've applied for a job at. And, you know, you already told her that, 
that, uh, you know, you hadn't heard anything, and when you do, you'll let her know. And here she is asking you again, have you heard anything back from the, you know, from, the, from any of these jobs, you know? You have a choice. That, that's, uh, it's got a thermostat on it, so it probably hit the thermostat. Um, it shuts off by itself. Um, you know, but you could respond in the flesh, which, depending on your personality, could involve, you know, raising your voice, Given a cutting answer, given the silent treatment, all-out fight, I mean, depends on what your personality is with those kind of things, but you have a choice in that moment how you're going to respond. Are you going to, are you going to yield to the flesh, or are you going to yield to the Holy Spirit? One of the, one of the unique dynamics of the Christian life is that it, it, it cannot work without the power of God. We can, we can go on for a while pretending. We can act like everything's all right, but you can't live your life as a Christian for very long without the power of God in your life. And if you try to do it that way, you're going to end up failing miserably. And that's why a lot of Christians do. That's why a lot of Christians give up. Because it's very hard to live the Christian life in your own flesh. It's very hard to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit living in you and working through you. Um, but, but we have the power of the Holy Spirit available to us. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. You know, and it's, it's no coincidence that that verse, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, is basically the prelude of probably the most powerful verses in the Bible that we have about marriage when it comes to the role of the man and the wife in a marriage, right? And, and he's just setting the table for those things. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5 later on, uh, in, actually in the next lesson, but being filled with the Spirit is just an act of surrender to God. And when we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit... It's a decision of faith to just allow the Holy Spirit to control us and being willing to be obedient to the commands of the Word of God. Without allow, allowing the Holy Spirit to fill us or to control our life, our days are going to be controlled by those false expectations, by those false responses, by those, uh, you know, those blow-up times in our marriage because I'm not dying to self and I'm not yielding to the Holy Spirit. The third thing then is this, serve your spouse. I skipped over Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 and 23. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's very important. But, uh, you know, when we think that if we yield our rights and surrender our expectations to God, uh, that we're going to be trampled on, that we're going to be made a doormat, that we're going to be taken advantage of. But if you look at what the fruits of the Spirit are, those are all things that deal with yielding ourselves to the Holy Spirit, yielding ourselves to our spouse. And that goes right along with this third point about serving your spouse. The only Christ-like Expectation is the expectation to serve, right? Think again of Philippians chapter 2, Christ's humility. Jesus had every right to expect to be served, but he chose instead to serve. I think the most practical step that you can take to curb unrealistic expectations in your marriage is to purposefully serve your spouse without expecting to get anything back in return. It's a very practical thing. It's a very easy thing to do uh, in, in word. It's harder to do in deed. But that's a very practical thing that we can do when it comes to yielding ourselves to the Holy Spirit, dying to ourselves. Serve. Serve without expecting anything in return. You know, look for real, tangible, specific ways to meet your spouse's needs. I came across this story, and I thought it was pretty good. D.L. Moody was, was probably the most famous evangelist in the late... 1800s, people came from all around the world to attend his Bible conference in Northfield, Connecticut, or, or Northfield, Massachusetts. And 
Uh, one year, a, a large group of pastors was uh, visiting from Europe. They were here for this conference, and uh, one of the things that they always do, they were, they were given dorm rooms in this Bible school, and one of the things that they all did was uh, every night they would leave their shoes sitting outside the door because during the night, servants would come and polish their shoes and have them polished and set back there at the door the next morning. Well, we don't do that in America. They, did, they do that in Europe, or at least they did. I don't know if they still do or not, but they, they did that in Europe, but not in America. And D.L. Moody was walking through the hallways later on in the evening, pretty much after everyone had already retired to their rooms for the night. And he was walking through the hallway praying for the different people there, and he saw all these shoes sitting outside of these doors. And being, you know, that he had been in Europe many times, he, he realized exactly what happened. And so he mentioned it to some of the Bible school students who were there, and none of them, you know did anything about it, and so he went and collected up all of those shoes, took them back to his room, and he started to polish all of those shoes in his room. And, uh, I mean, he, he didn't say anything to anybody about it, but another evangelist happened to, to interrupt him and come into his room while he was doing that and asked him what he was doing. And told him, when he told him what was going on, this evangelist sat down and helped him finish polishing these shoes, and then they set them all back out in front of the doors. And so the next morning they came out and they found their shoes polished. He never said a word about it. The only way that anybody knew anything about it was because this other evangelist later on told the story about D.L. Moody. Uh, but Moody's, you know, his act of service may not have been known by others, but it was evidence of his willingness to be humble. And that's one of the reasons why God used him so greatly. You know, you, you always see that. The, the greatest, the, the, greatest um, the people who are used the greatest by God are the ones who are willing to be the most humble. And that's true in a church, that's true in a marriage, that's true in a family, that's true in a workplace, that's true everywhere. The ones that God promotes are the ones who are willing to be humble. And, you know, the world conditions us to expect, you know, these glossy advertisements of, you deserve better, you know, come get this, you, this is something that you deserve to have, you know. Um, but the world consistently underperforms. The higher our expectations, the less satisfied reality becomes. So only a servant is going to be pleasantly surprised. Because if you go into it with the expectation that all you're going to do is serve and you're not going to get anything out of it, then you're not disappointed when you don't get anything out of it. Right? If all you're doing is going in to serve, then anything that happens in return for your service is, is an unexpected blessing. It's an unexpected surprise. Well, what could happen in your marriage if instead of expecting to be made happy, you made your number one desire to make your spouse happy, right? Most of us did that when we were dating. It was all about what can I do to make it special, you know? And then you get married, and it lasts for a little while, but it, it fades over time. Have you given thought to what your spouse's needs are? Are you willing to set aside your own needs and expectations to meet those? Um... Christ-like servanthood is not doing something, expecting something in return. You know, the wife, well, you know, if I make his favorite meal, he'll become more verbally communicative, you know. Maybe he'll talk more if I make his favorite meal. Or, you know, uh, if I buy her flowers, maybe she'll become more physically responsive. That's not why we do those things. We do the things that we do because we have a mind and a heart to serve, and that's it. And if that's what our mindset is, then we're never going to be met with unrealistic expectations because our expectations are zero. Here's the last thing. We've talked about 
the fact that expectations ruin relationships. We said that happiness is found in humility. And lastly, love is a choice. Love is a choice. Um, we often, I think, look at love as a noun. Love is a verb. Love is something that you do. Uh, if, you've, if you've been married for longer than five minutes, then you're going to experience unmet expectations. Um, it's part of life. It's definitely part of marriage. Uh, and the world conditions us, I think, to believe that love is, is fueled by a spouse being everything that I ever dreamed of. Um, when we discover that our spouse is not everything that we dreamed of, and, and no spouse is because no spouse can be perfect. No spouse can meet all the expectations. No spouse can do all of those things. When we, when we discover that, that we have two choices. We can become dis, disillusioned and bitter and all of those other things, or we can choose to love unconditionally and serve sacrificially. That's what, that's what our two choices are. The feeling of being in love comes very easily when all of my expectations are met. But then when those expectations are not met, well, I don't know if I'm in love anymore. See, true love, selfless love, requires very hard work of discovering what my spouse needs and then selflessly fulfilling those needs, selflessly serving him or selflessly serving her and having that personal discipline and commitment to do that again and again and again and again, whether or not I feel like my needs are being met or not. That's the kind of love that's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Charity suffereth long and is kind, and charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Boy, there's about 10 messages in that, that little section right there. If we could grasp those things, then we would never have to worry about loving our spouses again because it would just come naturally at that point. Um, but this kind of love involves real choices. You know, um, when couples are dating, and, and I, you know, I was, uh, the church that we were at had a college, and so, you know, not only did I see it while I was in college, but I saw it leading up to the time that I was in college just because we ended up doing things around the college students a lot and stuff like that. But when couples are dating, they usually find it very easy to spend, you know, large amounts of time together. You know, we had a, a little snack shop where you could go and, and uh, you know, you could sit there and uh, all, the date, most, all the dates were chaperoned, but, you know, if you were on campus, that was one place where you could go and you could sit and talk and whatever else. And I'll tell you what, sometimes it makes you sick to watch these people, you know, but just staring into each other's eyes, you know, this close from their face and everything else. And, you know, I mean, people late for work because they were, you know, on the phone all night or whatever else, you know, and, and it's easy to do. Uh, because they were in love, but, you know, after marriage, those same people find it difficult to spend any time together, you know? They find it difficult to look into each other's eyes at all, let alone this close to the other person's face, you know? Um, you know, and, and of course, then, you know, they're not willing to, to spend that same amount of time serving their spouse. You know, don't ask me to wash the dishes. Don't ask me to, you know, do this. Don't ask me to do that, um, but, but, but the truth is that the, the googly-eyed dating is, is more of a self-satisfying love, but real love is service. You know, when you're sitting in a snack shop looking into each other's eyes, there's not a whole lot of service that needs to be going on there, you know? 
writing love notes back and forth and all of that kind of stuff, you know, when you can go back to your dorm room and, you know, she can go back to her dorm room and, you know, there's not any of this real-life scenario, you know. But then when you're put into the real-life scenario, real-life service is self-sacrificing love. And, you know, that, that googly-eyed dating can be immaturity, but the second can grow your relationship, that self-sacrificing service. So choosing to serve has a powerful way of releasing our expectations. And that's what this whole lesson is about, expectations. Um, but it gets even better. It positions us for grace. I, I don't know of any Christian spouse who wouldn't agree that what their marriage needs more of is, God, is anything more than God's grace. We need, we need God's grace in our marriage. It's what we constantly need. It's what you need. It's what I need. But that comes through humility. And that's the humility that submits and serves. First Peter chapter 5 and verse number 5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Is choosing to serve when you don't feel love a sterile way to live? Is, is it dead love? Is it empty of meaning? Not at all. Because service begins with sacrifice, and it makes room for the, for the deepest feelings imaginable. You know, think about somebody, somebody in your life, you know, it, it could be a spouse, I suppose, but somebody in your life that, that did something for you that really meant a lot. They took a lot of time with you, or they, you know, they, they did this, or they did that. They endear themselves to you, don't they? Because of the way that they do those things. Imagine what that could do in your marriage if you were doing something like that every single day for your spouse, you know, serving your spouse giving to them without the expectation of anything in return. But it's that servant-based love that allows you to look back at, at maybe what was a self-centered picture of what marriage was all about. But it's that servant-based love that allows you look, to look back and, and you know, sometimes even laugh about it because you realize that marriage isn't a ready-made you know, photograph. It's a picture that you paint together day by day, choice by choice, brush stroke by brush stroke, and that's what makes a marriage a marriage, and that's what makes a marriage work. And this picture, the one that you paint together, turns out to be even better than the, than the, the travel brochure snapshot of what you thought marriage ought to be before you ended up getting married. And it's real, and it's like we looked at in 1 Peter chapter 5. It's painted with grace, and it's the grace that we need over and over and over and over and over. I hope the thing that you'll take away from this lesson is this. Our expectations will never be unmet if the only expectation that we have is to serve our spouse. Because if, you, if your expectation is only to serve and not to be served, then your expectations will never be unmet. Because you don't have any expectations in the first place. You know, we ought to be doing everything that we can to serve and to love our spouse without expecting anything in return. And then when we do get something in return, it makes it all that much better. And if both of us are trying to do that, trying to one-up the other one on how we can serve. I mean, that's what makes a marriage really good. So next week, we're going to look at needs, and we're going to look at uh, in, a, in a lot more detail at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 29. That's, that's um, 
the, the text for next week, and, and of course there's a lot in there about that. But expectations. If our expectation is to serve, then our expectations will never be unmet. Let's pray. We'll get ready for the next service. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. Thank you for, for the, the advice, the, the, uh, what we have in your word that helps us to live the way that we need to live. Pray that you be with the service in the next hour, God. I, I pray that you would just uh, keep it comfortable in here with the heat and everything else and, and that uh, you just bless the service. And again, we'll thank you for what you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I'm dismissed.